Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Great to see you. I opened up with that nigun because I usually use it use it for Hodu Lashem Kito Kileolam Chasto, a song of gratitude. And since we're in Thanksgiving week, a week of gratitude, although every week should be a week of gratitude. Um, that I figured it was a, it was fitting. And I'm so, I'm grateful for you all being here, given that it's Thanksgiving week. For some, that might be a busy week. For some, it might not be. Um, but I'm glad you're here for that. And we've been loving it at VBM. Yesterday, we were out on our humanitarian bus down in the homeless zone, just passing out coffees and pastries and supplies. And unfortunately, toys um, for kids hiding in the tents as well. And so... Um, Grateful I've done that. And right after this class, shortly after this class, we're headed back down there again. Thanks for all of your support that we're able to do that. We're headed over to the homeless zone where there's over 3,000 people sleeping in the tents, where we are passing out um, sandwiches today and hot coffee and things like that. And then headed over to a church where there's some asylum seekers being dropped off. And then tonight, we're having our, our annual refugee Thanksgiving dinner. If any of you are local and you want to join um, we're having refugees and asylum seekers from Central America, from Africa, um, over at my home to welcome them to America with their first Thanksgiving. Tofurkey! Welcome to America. Here's some Tofurkey. <laughs> so <laughs> they'll be very confused about what it means to celebrate Thanksgiving. But you're, um, you're all invited, of course, always. Um, and uh, yes, and the Canadians, you've got your own Thanksgiving over there in October. So you already had that, that nice time. Anyways, um, today's presentation is slightly on the longer side just because you could do a 10-part cl uh, class series on environmentalism, and we're going to squeeze all of that into one little session here of Shmirat Teva, of guarding the earth. And so that, of course, is part of kindness as well, not only kindness to people, as we talk a lot about, kindness to animals, as we'll talk about next week, but kindness to the earth and how that actually is interconnected with of course, with kindness to ourselves and to each other. So let's start with a poll question. I think the climate crisis is A, urgent and a top priority, B, important, but there are more urgent and, and immediate concerns, or C, will get resolved and is nothing much to worry about. Okay, cast your vote over there. Okay, let's see what we got. 
Okay, 89% say urgent, top priority. 11% say important, but there's more urgent and important immediate concerns. And no one says, we'll get resolved, nothing much to worry about here. Um, some of us may have grown up with a theology like that. Ah, everything's going to work out, you know, um, but I guess that's nobody here. Okay, when God created the world, we human beings are put in charge. Let's remind us of what the, the most uh, famous verses say here in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let me make humankind in my image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the heavens, animals of all the earth, and all crawling things that crawl about on the earth. God created humankind in God's image, and in the image of, of God, God created them. God blessed them, saying, bear fruit and be many and fill the earth and subdue it. Have power over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all living things that crawl about on the earth. Then in the very next chapter, we're tasked with working and guarding the land. It says in chapter 2, at the time that God made the earth and heaven, no bush of the field was yet on earth. No plant of the field was yet sprung up. For God had not made it rain upon the earth, and there was no human to till the ground, right? Adam is person, Adama is earth, and God formed the human, Adam, from the dust of the soil, Adama. God planted the Garden of Eden. God took the human and set him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. Okay, so, um, so we see over here, first chapter, that humans have a responsibility over life. And then second chapter, an obligation to work and guard the land. So does this mean that humans are necessarily the top priority of all creation? Perhaps the Talmudic rabbis share that if a person exploits their privileges, they're actually lowered. It says over here in um, the Midrash Rabbah, if man is worthy, they, the heavenly host, say to him, you preceded the ministering angels. And if not, they say to him, a fly preceded you, a mosquito preceded you, this worm preceded you, right? So if we do well, it's like we're the pinnacle of creation. And if we do not, we see that the priority is not the last of creation, but the first of creation. But this will not prove to be a simple task to rise to such a challenge. The rabbis in a very famous midrash from the fifth century taught of what's at stake. It says over here, when God created Adam, God took Adam and led him around all the trees of the garden. And God said to Adam, look at my creations, how beautiful and amazing they are. And everything I made, I created for you. But be careful that you don't spoil or destroy my world, because if you do, there's no one after you to fix it. One of the most pressing needs for our contemporary moment is controlling climate change and mitigating the looming disaster if humanity chooses to do nothing. If there is no earth to live on, there is no way to express our faith traditions, offer kindness to one another, or even survive at all. I've seen a lot of the devastation firsthand, as many of us have. As I've traveled, performing social action relief work, I've seen with my own eyes the detrimental effects of climate change on communities and developing nations. Without access to resources or the halls of power, 
Many people in rural villages have to endure living in proximity to unprocessed sewage and waste, contaminated fresh water sources, and polluted skies. Many of them are quite sick and malnourished. They are alone. There is no one to advocate for these vulnerable communities. No one within the community within the influence to lobby the government to ask for protection. Such problems cannot be solved unilaterally, and this reality can sadden us. But counterintuitively, it also emboldens and inspires us. It, may, it, it made me realize that to create a thriving future for the most at-risk communities all over the world, there's a sacred obligation to carve out the necessary space in our, in our activist work to care for the environment. And as we reflect on the issue at hand, we can think about the need for people of deep faith to speak out and foment a, a new spiritual revolution, one that rejects the need for dominance and instead calls for a unity to repair a world brought to the brink by elements that exploit and plunder the world of its beauty. Though modern societies as a whole have in many ways rejected the call of religion to heal significant global problems, there's much wisdom to be found within many religious traditions that can address this crucial moment. It is for this reason among many that I was moved by how the Pope talked about the work to, co to combat climate change. In 2015, Pope Francis addressed the ecological crisis in Laudato Si on care for our common home. In his address, Pope Francis connected the inner spiritual lives of human beings with the planet's health. He noted that to address the climate change crisis, we need a new mode of spirituality where the virtues of humility, gratitude, and sobriety overcome the vices of greed and overconsumption due to a fear of scarcity. A statement from the United States Conference of Bishops in 2014 presages the Pope's encyclical. At its core, global climate change is not the economic theory uh, or political platforms, nor about partisan advantage or interest group pressures. It is about the future of God's creation and the one human family, they wrote. Similar, similarly, the Vietnamese Buddhist thinker Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, our work of walking on the earth has a great significance, a great influence on animals and planets. We have killed so many animals and plants and destroyed their environment. Many are now extinct. In turn, our environment is now harming us. The future of all life, including our own, depends on our mindful steps. I felt a sacred obligation to carve out the necessary space in my religious activist work to care for the environment. I saw how the factory farming industry, more than any other industry on the planet, destroys our land, our water, our animals, and our bodies. I saw the practices that treated living creatures, divine creatures, as nothing more than a product subject to abuse. By being a voice against brutal and inhumane practices, we can join the interfaith and international struggle to push society away from needless cruelty while also promoting the health of the body and soul of all people. So friends, let us consider some theological proposals that all of us, regardless of our faith, might come to agree on to different degrees. Perhaps one, God created the earth, water, air, fire, and sky. These elements have inherent purity and sanctity. Number two, God owns the land and we merely borrow the land while here on earth. Number three, because of the sacred duty of stewardship, we are responsible to hand over the earth to the next generation the same way that we received it from the generations before us. Number four, to preserve the environment, we will cultivate, 
character traits such as modesty, gratitude, equanimity, and so many others. Number five, while we will not be punished, while we, while we will not be punished by the courts of our time for destroying the land, air, or water when our actions comply with secular law, we are indeed religiously culpable for such damage. Sir David Attenborough, the noted naturalist, commented, Right now, we are facing a man-made disaster of global scale, our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. If we do nothing, if we stay in our corners, then we do so at our own peril. There are so many more approaches that could be taken to increase meaningful dialogue between faiths and ideologies. We could offer different articulations of these many points as well. But this must be more than just virtue signal signaling and sermonizing. We must ask ourselves as faith leaders how we will model the following. Number one, more sustainable communal practices. Number two, more modesty in how we publicly waste. Number three, a reduction of consumption of animal products. Moving toward veganism or at least vegetarianism or at least reductionism. Number four, advocating for environment, environmental policy changes in addition to our parochial self-concerned political issues. Number five, develop theological language beyond our own communal articulations for how we universally can collaborate. As we approach the difficult but ultimately rewarding work to improve ourselves and the world around us, there are countless avenues where we find opportunities to collaborate in both intra and interreligious settings. In fact, cross-religious dialogue is perhaps one of the most dynamic paths towards this reconciliation and hope. We are able to seek teachers from across the faith spectrum and look beyond leaders within our own faiths. As we work to create opportunities to collaborate, we engender the ability to plant real seeds of change among the great religious traditions. Our work, our world needs this change urgently. Spiritual leaders, myself, potentially included, need to do more to facilitate interreligious dialogue on this. This cross-cultural, intra-communal, and broadly human project is urgent, given how rapidly humans pollute the air and sea, destroy and exploit the Earth's re natural resources, and the rapid growth of natural disasters and pandemics. The ability to have spaces for true interreligious dialogue will hopefully one day save humanity from its worst impulses. Nothing less than the future of the world is at stake. Not only has some of our, have, have some of our own religious activism been motivated by personal experiences and by leaders of various faiths, but also indeed primarily by Jewish texts, many of us have been motivated. I personally draw on a passage in the Talmud when I think about the necessary essential, the necessary essential work to protect and care for our, our own fragile environment. The Talmud tells us of a man named Honi. We've talked about Honi here before. One day as Honi walked along a road, he saw a man planting a carob tree. Honi asked of the man, how long will it take for this tree to bear fruit? 70 years, the man replied. Honi then asked, are you so healthy that you expect to live that length of time and eat its fruit? The man answered, I found a fruitful world because of my ancestors planted it before me. Likewise, I am planting for my children. There are countless Jewish legal and theological models for engagement. Let's name a few of these. La'ovda u'l-shomra, as we mentioned already from Genesis, the divinely 
mandated work to protect creation. Pikuach nefesh, the Torah command to save life. Baal tashchit, the Torah prohibition against waste. Avodah begashmut, making interactions with materialism spiritually deep. Anivut, humility, not engaging in overconsumption, not being balei gaiva, um, filled with arrogance and self-consumption. Hakaratato, gratitude, channeling gratitude for our blessings toward responsibility. Vehalachda bidracha, imitatio dei, that God is merciful and thus we cultivate our characters in emulation of the divine. It's obvious that Jewish practices teach us to be more mindful, modest, and open to meaningful transformational experiences. What is less obvious is how we can create sustainable behavioral change. Leadership scholars teach that we should not operate from fear and past models when attempting to weather the storm. It says over here from Heifetz um, in his work on leadership, the danger in the current economic situation is that people in positions of authority will hunker down. They will try to solve the problem with short-term fixes. They'll default to what they know how to do in order to reduce frustration. Their primary mode will be drawing on familial, familiar expertise to help their organization weather the storm, right? As opposed to a paradigm shift. In all we do, we need to cultivate consistency. This is where ritual commitment helps us. If we live with religious discipline, this concept can carry over into the discipline of environmental protection and stewardship. And though the task feels daunting, history is filled with stories of leaders who adapted to change and those who refused and were engulfed by history. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams to mean that seven years of abundance would be followed by seven years of famine. And so the grain surplus was stored during the years of abundance and helped save Egypt during the succeeding famine. Joseph could have become acquiescent. However, he understood that eventually there would come a time of scarcity and acted accordingly and proactively. On the other hand, the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, ignored the literal writing on the wall. At his peril, he de and decided to celebrate what he thought would be a long, secure reign. In reality, a large force of Persians and Medes were about to overthrow him. This, this world has been entrusted to humanity to watch over. And that means we are to relate with care and dignity to all. Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch taught, do not destroy anything. That means Baal Tashchit. This is the first and most general call of God, which comes to you, man, when you realize yourself as master of the earth. If you should indulge in senseless rage, wishing to destroy that which you should only use, wishing to exterminate that which you should only exploit, if you should regard the beings beneath you as objects without rights, not perceiving God who created them, and therefore desire them that they feel the might of your presumptuous mood, instead of using them only as the means of wise human activity, then God's call proclaims to you, do not destroy anything. Be a mensch only if you use the things around you for the wise human purposes, only that you are a mensch and have the right over them. Very interesting. However, if you destroy, if you ruin at the moment, you are not a human, but an animal. You have no right to the things around you. I lent to you for wise use only. Never forget 
that I lent them to you. As soon as you use them unwisely, you commit treachery against the world. You commit murder and robbery against my property. You transgress against me. In truth, there is no, no one nearer to idolatry than one who disregards, who can disregard the fact that things are the creatures and property of God and who presumes also the, to have the right to destroy them according to a presumptuous act of will. Yes, that, that, that one is already serving the most powerful idols, anger, pride, and above all, ego, which in its passion regards itself as the master of things. Wow, this is a few hundred years ago of Hirsch's writings. Nature is to be sustained, not only because it sustains us, but also because it is a pathway to the divine. The numerology for one of the names of God, Elohim, is the same as the Hebrew word for nature, teva. Furthermore, we can study all of nature and realize that God created everything with a purpose. The Talmud teaches, Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, of all that the Holy One be blessed, created in God's world, God did not create a single thing without purpose. Right? Everything is created with purpose. Another Midrash shares, our rabbis taught, even those things that you may regard as completely superfluous to creation, like flies and fleas and mosquitoes, even they were included in creation. In God's purpose is carried through everything, even through a snake, a mosquito, a frog. Yehoshua Lieberman, a contemporary writer, shares that various Talmudic tractates can also inform us on these matters. In face of the observation that in modern economic literature, the issue of social responsibility and environmental protection does not emerge extensively before the 1960s. It is particularly striking to find a fully developed framework for treating these issues and sources as early as the Mishnah. As a matter of fact, a whole chapter in the tractate of Bava Batra is devoted to environmental protection. The chapter of Lo Yachpur in Bava Batra is actually a systematic collection of environmental protection regulations aimed at restricting activities motivated by private economic incentives that tend to disregard social responsibility considerations. Examples include a requirement of a minimum distance between planted trees and city limits to prevent insects, allergies, etc., and a requirement of minimum height between a stove in a lower story and a floor of a flat in an upper story to avoid excessive heat. Right. So we often think of ancient religion as backwards, only to give way to progressive ideas. But in fact, the, the environmental movement is so new. And we see here that the, the rabbis of the Talmud were already deeply immersed in thinking about these issues. As we discussed above, we are not given the right to simply do whatever we please in our personal lives without concern for the welfare of our surroundings. We are all together on one planet. The rabbis taught, Chizkiah said, Israel is a dispersed lamb. Israel, is Israel, meaning the Jewish people, is compared to a lamb because just as in the case of a lamb, when one of its limbs is hurt, all of its limbs feel the pain. So too, Israel, if one man will sin, and yet you will become angry at the entire congregation. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it well when he wrote, there, seemed, there seems to be little doubt that much biblical legislation is concerned with what we nowadays call sustainability. This is particularly true of the three great commands ordaining periodic rest, the Sabbath, the sabbatical year, 
and the Jubilee year. On the Sabbath, all agricultural work is forbidden. We become conscious of being creatures, not creators. What the Sabbath does for human beings and animals, the sabbatical and Jubilee years do for the land. Rav Soloveitchik taught about the deep relationship between Adam, a person, and Adama, the earth. The mitzvah of burial indicates the validity of the demand that earth makes of man. She insists upon the, re- the return of part of her own self. As soon as the Ruach Elohim, godly spirit, departs man, his inanimate body must be delivered to its rightful owner. We are duty-bound to act gently towards the earth, not as an alien autocrat over a people subjugated by force, but as a loving father over his son. I have found that the most helpful and sustainable way to carve out time for environmental activism and, and activities, while, while there's so many other demands in life, is to make very small but consistent changes in one's daily habits. Though, it, though often difficult, we can try to remind ourselves of how much we love our children or grandchildren and how badly we want them to, to we want the world to be inhabitable for them. We cannot wait for this change as we know we must be the change. In our work, friends, I, we often talk about what we must change the world from the inside out, that we must change our behavior to allow for self-transformation. Such a model will then hopefully lead to an outward change. This pedagogical technique should not be misunderstood to mean that we must first perfect ourselves before we can work for social change, since that, of course, will never happen. The work we, we do to transform ourselves and the universe around us is never complete. This fact makes life, makes life challenging yet exciting. So to conclude, to everyone, to all of us, whether we're a believer or a non-believer, a neophyte or an expert, or someone simply invested in the notion that a single person can make an enormous difference, we, all, we are all responsible to hand over the earth to the next generation the same way we received it from the generations before us. Let us take the care of and transform of our world, not only for ourselves, but for our descendants and for years to come. Okay, friends, I know that was long-winded, but... Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can um, uh, um, show kindness through taking care of our world. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. That's like one of the most important topics you can speak about. And thank you so much. And, it would be great if you want to take the, give that eight-week course, go for it. Um, my frustration is like, I, there's so much, so much I can do as a human being, and I do all I can. I don't drive, I don't eat meat, you know, recycle, do the whole bit. Vote for those who, who are ecologically conscious, but unfortunately, those aren't the dudes who get elected. And it's very frustrating. I mean... I'm living in Ontario where the idiot premier is wanting to pave over all our wetlands. And we know that it's going to cause flooding. It's going to destroy the soil. It's going to destroy the waterbed. And once you destroy it, it's not coming back. Um, what do you do with that frustration? What, what can one person do to try and prevent this unmitigated disaster that it's about to happen. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren, um, so much for that. And there's so much to say about that. I'll say just two brief things. Um, 
The first, first is that I believe that most people appreciate this value, but really need the adults in the room to take charge. That is to say, people can't make all the changes on their own. They need government to regulate. They need government to incentivize. They need government to make us do things. Um, many people want to make changes, but unless um, the government enforces it and incentivizes it and makes it possible, many people are gonna are gonna count up count up the dollars and cents whether solar powers make sense for them. They're gonna count up the dollars and cents to make sense of switching the kind of car they have makes sense for them. We need to make it easier for people to make those changes because people have a right to be concerned about their personal finances. So that's the first thing I want to say. And so based on that, I, I believe the, the culprits are actually very small. The people who actually don't care or are completely reckless, but they have so much lobby power and so much corporate power that they control government. And so there really needs to be a fundamental shift on campaign financing, the public, a shift on the power of big lobbies um, that basically make it impossible for major systemic change to happen. Because Democrats and Republicans both are reliant upon big ag money, big agriculture money. They're reliant about a whole bunch of money that makes it hard for anyone to make the changes that everyone knows have to be made. So those are, um, are, are, are the first two things I want to say. Um, the role of government here to play the role and the role of shifting uh, how lobbies work. The last thing I want to say on this is many of us still fall into the trap that feel that America needs to be a global superpower and that America being a global superpower means GDP has to always rise. Growth, growth, growth. Because you cannot campaign and win an election if you're like, actually, I'm anti-growth, right? Everyone wants to know that we're constantly going to grow. And that means overspending, overproducing, lots of destruction. And we're gonna have to figure out how to get over that mentality of um, that sense uh, that um, that there's no consequence to just um, reckless growth. And so um, I don't have the answers to that, how we're gonna get there, but I do know that those are some of the main problems. Yes, Aglaia and then Eileen. Thank you, Lauren. Okay, so I think everyone's probably going to think I'm halfway crazy, though, but just I'm going to get to a point in just a minute, though. But I did this to mess with my students one time, and it speaks to what do we change within ourselves. So to mess with my students one time, I just asked them, most of them are Christian. I said, well, would you actually tell a lie if someone made you swear on the Quran? And this one lady looked at me like, are you kidding? And I said, do you go into a mosque or a synagogue or any like basically throwing around all kinds of swear words and everything like that? And then they were like, no, we can't do that. And I said, because you expect, you know, accept that those are things that are sacred and belong to God, right? And they said, yes. And I said, what if we humans actually just gave up this idea that we belong to ourselves and treated everyone the same way, like something that belongs to God? And so therefore too sacred for us to like lie to or, you know, be very disrespectful, you know, to and then they all looked at me like I was crazy again. But then I'm used to that look. So the way that I was looking at it from the perspective of the environment, what if we did treat the environment the same way? What if we could actually like just get this into our heads? And But I think a lot of the problem is, though, is that we still want this belief that, well, we own things. 
Um, and that we actually have, we own ourselves, which, you know, I gave up on that a while back. But anyway, though, but this idea that, yes, things do belong to us to do whatever we want. And it's just sort of kind of not true. So, Yeah, I love that. And so Aglaia is pushing to us towards a really fascinating conversation around what is the sacred and what is the mundane? What is holy and what is not? And that's a really important topic for us to get clarity on in our lives. Um, now, some of us may take a maximalist approach and say everything is equally holy, right? On some spiritual sense, everything is God, everything is one. And so a table is no different than a person. A frog is no different than a rock. Um, I've but done I that to them before. Us, <laughs> I've done well, that to them. I said, well, yeah, you're no different from your cell phone just to mess with You them, are right? no different than your cell phone, right? Um, and so, but bracketing that approach, because it's going to be hard for us to live without differentiation um, and distinction, um, we're going to have to decide, like, what is actually valuable and what is valueless? What is holy and what is not? And, and as Aglaia pointed to, we have a sense that a house of worship is a special place, right? You're not going to just drop F-bombs inside a, a, a mosque or a church or a shul in a way that you might at a football game, right? I, I mean, you know, um, right? But so too, like, what if we said walking in the woods was a synagogue, right? Is a forest, is a forest a holy place? Is being on a lake a holy place? Being on top of a snowy mountain? Is being in your family room, room a sacred place, right? What are the sacred places of our lives where... Um, we have to operate by a, a higher standard. And one of the ways that the halakha understands that the synagogue is a holy place is that it can't be used instrumentally. That is to say, you can't pass through a synagogue for a shortcut because you go there as an ends in itself. You go there to pray. You don't go there to pass through. So too, a human being can't be treated instrumentally. A person is an ends in themselves, in herself. You can't use a human being for another ends, at least that's the goal, right? And so are there other things in our lives that shouldn't be merely instrumental, but actually are, are valuable in themselves? That's So Aglaia, thank you for pushing us in that direction. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um, Arizona has a problem with water, and it turns out it's not the residential usage, it's the agricultural usage. And some of us remember reading a couple of months ago that there was a foreign country that had developed agricultural land and was using our water free and not paying for it. And my question is, that to me is a direct violation of everything we believe how how can we control it? How can we reduce the usage or actually stop it? Thank you. I'd love to open that question up to folks. Anyone want to uh, engage with Eileen's thought here? Don't throw roses in the desert. Who was that? My daughter said, don't oh. grow roses in the desert. <laughs> However, if you're on a drip system... Yes, thank you. So, 
you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sorry to be a, a little bit political for a moment. Um, Senator Cinema, I, I, while in the in the last major bill that got through, I wasn't so pleased that she she nixed a bunch of important taxes that I thought were um, really important and you know wanted to protect the ultra rich from being taxed. Um, that's my personal view. But I, to her credit, she did, um, being the final vote, get to have some personal sway, and she. Um, uh, she did advocate against, you know, uh, against droughts and brought a bunch of money to Arizona to address uh, the rivers that are drying up. Um, so it's still a technical fix, not an adaptive fix. But uh, there are some people who are advocating for that. And um, and so anyways, yeah, I'd love to see if anyone wants to engage with Eileen's point around water usage um, and, and, and how we think about that on a systemic level. If I can just say something, having lived in Israel, Israel is one of the world leaders. As you know, they um, they developed irrigation and actually did literally make the desert blue. Um, they also are one of the leaders in desalination plants using the Mediterranean Sea. In Arizona, you don't have that thing. And they're really good at recycling wastewater. And so if any of you have ever visited like in Israel and you see like in a park right near the flowers of the bushes. They're purple, um, purple tubes with water coming out. That's recycled water. And it's not meant for drinking water, but pretty well all agricultural water use in Israel is of recycled wastewater, which is a great way to go. Though I also think like given that, you know, Israel has no choice, Arizona has a choice. I don't understand why there's any agricultural agriculture going on in um, a desert climate. It doesn't make sense to me. Leave it to the Northeast where they get rain. Yeah. I'll throw Thank this you. out there also, um, just to throw this out there. Um, uh, well, I don't know. Um, I know the people in Louisiana that I've met some politicians in Louisiana who are looking into something similar to what Lauren's describing in Israel. So I don't know if we just need to get some creative you know, forward thinking people in, um, I, well, to tell you the truth that I'd love if we had more of those people in Louisiana, but the people I've been talking to are the ones who lose elections. I don't mean to say it in the mean way, but they usually are the ones who lose elections. Okay. But it's because I think a lot of the time that people are really in this mindset of this is the way it's always been done. And so we have to keep doing it this way. So, you know, I don't know if there's a way to like get some creative juices flowing in Arizona. Is there? I don't know. Um, I would say that we're close to California. There's no reason why we couldn't have a consortium of the states and do a desalinization plant or a series in California and pump this water to Arizona, pump the water to the states that need it. They can pump oil from Canada. Why not pump water? We don't want to pump the oil. <laughs> that is a really long... Okay, I would love it. Okay, Lauren, please come and talk to my class about this because I'm tired of talking to them about the oil. Yeah, please come and tell them. They're not listening to me. <laughs> Who else wants to jump in here? Can anybody hear me? 
or abstract. Yes, hi, Gary. Hi, I'm driving. I just, real quick, I just find it interesting. Sorry, I came in late. Uh, but I just find it interesting that we're trying trying to promote so much here on Earth, and yet we have this whole uh, technology of wanting to go to a uh, metaverse or an avatar to get out of here. So I'm going to throw out to that. We can't fix this world, but yet we're all ready to go to another world. Yeah, Gary, I think that's a really interesting point. Not not only around actual space travel, and and the you know some billionaires who want to you know create uh, you know alternative homes out there potentially uh, to escape, but also like to what degree do we try to uh, escape the natural world um, and kind of nature itself, whether it's through the metaverse or other forms of virtual reality or um, denying our own nature, right? To what extent do we view ourselves psychologically as part of the natural world versus something beyond? And in Jewish theology, that's there's already an interesting strain on that issue. That those who believe that we are fundamentally beings of nature and those who believe that we are supernatural beings, to a certain degree, like are, are, are humans fundamentally a spiritual entity that happen to be in a body or are we fundamentally animals that happen to have a soul? Right. And that's an interesting distinction as to whether we, you know, how much we view ourselves as integrated within this whole. And I think you're right. This move towards kind of a metaverse partially is like our inability to be present within um, natural spaces like we've lost in, in many ways that that culture of um that pervasive culture of kind of immersing you know and and trying to escape so gary thanks for that yeah hi ethan hi rabbi um i was gonna take a slightly off of that that topic so if anyone wants to, to jump in no, there, go, no, go for space but okay um well rabbi i I was trained uh, in the, I, I got a, an economics degree. I do not have a faith uh, background yet um, like you do. And so the, the economics answer to this sort of environmental crisis question, I think you talked about earlier when you talked about the need for government and policy to push people to make the right decisions, right? John Smith talks about the invisible hand that all people are self-interested and ultimately will do what is right for them, right? So there's part of me as an economist that says, just like you said earlier, we just need to make situations in which people are going to choose what is best for themselves. And that that answer is also what is best for the climate crisis that is at hand. My question to you as a rabbi and someone who is trained in faith uh, and morals and values is, is that inherently flawed? Um, that we are asking people to do what is right for the world in a way that is selfish, um, that is uh, in, in some ways, um, you know, not rooted in, in wanting what is right for all people, but what is uh, ultimately going to hopefully be effective, um, but isn't rooted in, in an altruistic passion to actually, you know, cure our, our earth that we're living on. Love it. I, so I love I, 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 I love the direction Ethan's pu pushing us in. And I want to just, um, you know, elevate what the, the tension he's raising rather than tr try to answer it, of course, for others to engage that in philosophy, we would call this distinction uh, in, 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 in a sense, consequentialism versus virtue ethics. 
So the virtue ethics side would say, wait a minute, we don't want government to push this on us. We want people to become people of character and make these choices themselves so that they can be choiceful and moral agents, right? And as consequentialists, on the other hand, we'd say we're much less concerned about people's character development and much more concerned about the consequence of choices and need to make these decisions for people, right? And all of us will at times be consequentialists. And all of us at times will 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 choose virtue ethics. The question is, on this issue, which would we choose? Do we want to leave this the personal choice so that people can be altruistic and hope that enough people will do that so that we'll save the planet, so to speak? Or do we say character is going to be second and the stakes are so high that we need to push this on folks? And where would we make a different choice? Where would we make a different choice? Right. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps um, there are some going back to our session on good manners. Remember the session on good manners? Perhaps we're not going to legislate good manners. We're going to say like, all right, like, you know, you're not going to get fined 10 bucks if you don't say thank you to the waiter, you know. <laughs> and, you know, if you're you know, if you do something a little bit rude, you're not going to get a bill in the mail, you know. But like we want people to make these choices themselves, you know, even though there's a lot at stake with having a kind society. Right. But we might say on environmentalism, or we might not that like, wow, the stakes are too high. We can't trust people on this, you know. So, Ethan, I'm curious to hear your your kind of your your, your And so I frame that philosophically. And of course, politically, um, you know, that would be libertarianism, the side that's going to say, wait a minute, like we need to be a free society. Freedom is going to be the key. And freedom means less government regulation. And that's one approach that we might agree with on some things. Some people might appreciate that on abortion. Hey, let women choose, right? Freedom. And some people might appreciate, not appreciate that on guns. Wait a minute. I don't want everyone to choose who gets a gun. I want to regulate that. And we're going to have inconsistencies on when we want people to choose and when we want government to choose. Everyone's going to have some inconsistencies. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's, and those inconsistencies are part of the tension of our American debates today, right? Republicans want government to choose some things and want people to choose some things. Democrats want governments to choose some things and people to choose other things. And we kind of try to have a coherent ideology to explain those away, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always work. So Ethan, you, you want to engage with that before I give it to Toby? Toby? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's important that you bring up that uh, this isn't a, a one-size-fits-all answer to any you know conflict that you may have, um, and I think it's important to recognize the seriousness of the climate crisis that we are facing right now. Um, and although in other spaces I would typically give the the good Jewish answer, which would be it's somewhere both of, you know, using both. Um, and it, it probably does need to be in that space for this as well. Um, I just kind of simply believe that we are running out of time on this, um, in, incredibly destructive, um, crisis, you know, as, as we so appropriately name it. Um, and that without pushing people to do, to just make them do the right thing um, that I, I just simply don't really care at this point how that's done, as long as it's done in, in an ethical way. Um, 
I just think it's too serious of a, of a, of a problem at this point just to leave up to chance as to whether or not people are, are going to react in, in the right way or, or not. So. Thanks, Ethan. Thank you for sharing that. Just before we go to Toby over there, um, I just want to thank Aglaia because I, um, I was very ignorant about NASA's role in, um, in, in combating climate change and, and, and um, your links over there are, are eye-opening for me. So thank you for sharing how NASA, NASA's technology fights climate change, also how their satellites show us some of our screw-ups. Uh, thank you for that. Hi, Toby. Um, hats off to Ethan for his opinion coming from an economical background. I think we've left things to, um, to people's natures for long enough. Um, we've seen that there are a, a lot of very greedy people or ignorant people. I, I'm, you know, either way, the, the, the results are the same. And it, like Ethan put it very well. We're running out of time. I mean, we've seen already the difference in, you know, I'm old, so I've been around for a long time, and I've seen the climate change as far as tornadoes in places where there weren't tornadoes and hurricanes in places where there weren't hurricanes and all of this stuff. Um, and I think the idea of doing this in an ethical way by providing governmental incentives, we're not going to say, look, if you don't put solar on your house, we're going to lock you up and we're going to lock your family up too. That's not what we're saying as far as what I'm understanding. But we give, you know, fine, you don't have to pay taxes for, or your income taxes will be refunded for five years after you install solar or some, some reason. Because there's a lot of people in this country, what is it, 1% that make over $100,000 a year? I mean, there's a lot of people in this country who cannot afford, not even saying the rest of the world. Because America's not going to save the universe. I hate to tell you, but I don't think that's going to happen. And what do we do with people, you know, who live in Africa, who have, whose gross national product is like zero? You know, I mean, can you even see people in Ethiopia putting solar on their house? I mean, I don't see that happening just because of the economics of it. So if, at least if we start in the United States and give incentives for things, driving less or using cars that don't use fossil fuel, whatever, to give tax incentives to those people, it's a step in the right direction. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. And just before we go to Sarah and Steve, Eric, Alex, Eddie, whoever else we haven't heard from yet, um, I, I, I think an interesting test case actually is seeing how hard change was in the pandemic and yet seeing um, at least in some stages of it, how pervasive some of that change became. Um, and that was because it wasn't only government mandate trying to um, enforce public health, but corporations joined. Corporations knew they would lose customers if they didn't also have some mandates and families participated, faith institutions participated. There was a systemic participation um, around whether it was mask mandates at the time or social distance mandates. And that was really hard and really contentious. But there were some moments in there that felt like there was a collective kind of operating together. And um, we're going to have to kind of flex those muscles more to figure out in the future how we're going to work together. And it's going to have to take, and hopefully it won't wait until there's three to 4,000 people dying a day for us to have to enforce things like that. Hi, Sarah. 
Good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. Um, I'm really grateful for this in light of the recent summit and the lack of any action once again by the industrialized world towards changing their policies in spite of what the youth around the globe is saying, around what the endangered nations are saying at these summits year after year after year. I was encouraged, at least in the past, when I learned about the evangelical movement for eco-reform. And that whole movement gave me hope for more of an ecumenical faith-based move to save our planet, to save this gift that we have, that we hope we can pass on to generations. I have so little hope that we're going to change the values that people hold most dear to their hearts and that our, what I see as an increasingly greedy um, world changes and recognizes that all beings matter. And I don't know what to do with that. I, I can only do what I can do, but it breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart when I see the generations that are following me in my old age and saying, you know, like, what am I leaving here? And will you have a planet to live on? And as we destroy so much of the world in terms of food, just generally their agricultural future and living space with the ama amazing amount of immigration that is going to happen because there won't be islands that people are going to be able to live on any longer. And there will be far more destruction of even the land masses we have. Where are they all going to go? In spite of the fact that we're all becoming so greedy that we don't want other people destroying our way of living. No. So I, I'm very sad and I want to believe that our actions together can turn this stupid freighter around and change where we're going. Thank you, Sarah. And Steve Chauvin, we're going to have to pull you off the bench into the game in a minute because you are always bullish and optimistic. And as you can see, there's a healthy dose of pessimism and concern and sadness here in the Zoom today. Um, and so we're going to... We're gonna, can I just you were, step in really quickly? I don't yeah. mean to interrupt you or anything like that, but I'm really sorry about this, though, but this was the reason why I gave my father's class ring to a student who was really making climate change his life's work. So uh, there is like this is just to throw something really hopeful out there that that was why I picked him because yeah. climate change is so and I saw the hope in him so yeah great thank you Hi, uh, yes um, and and I, and just before we go to Steve I want to echo Sarah's 
you know, concerns there and also um, your sense around the value of the interfaith work. That was why I framed a lot of this session as well around um, in interfaith work, because I think we need to create a global, a global language of sanctity here uh, beyond the particularism. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, yes, uh, I, I would say the the albatross on my neck and shoulders is my optimism. It, it is it is undiminished despite what is happening. I think part of the invisible hand, which traditionally Ethan and I know uh, a little bit differently, is experience. And my experience, despite some tremendous personal hardships has been gradually step-by-step step, higher and higher. I see the experience, we talked about overconsumption as, as one of the boogeymen uh, in today's world. I can see the experience of kids, kids meaning anyone younger than me, 80 years old, uh, kids having gone through the economic crisis of 2008 and early 2009, were badly burned to the point where they're less likely to be overconsuming. unfortunately, in my eyes, less likely to get married and have children. And I think experience will prove to be, hopefully only temporarily, uh, the invisible hand. I, I am so bullish on the future. I can see people talking about, I, I think once a problem is discussed, it is half solved. And I think all of this discussion now will maybe using that word too much invisibly cause change. But, but I've seen what we've been through. People who are 80 like me uh, have been through polio and AIDS and and Kent State and Vietnam and the Second World War and Korea and McCarthy and the, the assassination of three major leaders in 67 and what was it, in, in the 1960s, we have survived, but we've not only survived, we prospered and flourished. Uh, the kids that I meet at Best Buy and people are trying to help me at, at, at Macy's um, they're they're all so kind and so nice, and and so I'll end it there. I am so optimistic about the future. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Good. So we can hold. Um, we we uh, <laughs> I vote for Steve. Yeah, <laughs> praying you're right. Thank you. Yeah. So we can hold the pessimism. The challenge is we can hold the optimism, and we can figure out how to do our parts. Our part. Um, in creating a new spiritual consciousness, our, our part in advocacy, our part in enduring. And I think Steve is, is right that we can feel some resiliency in seeing how many challenges have been overcome in the past, um, seeing how many uh, various um, hardships and difficulties have, have been overcome. Um, so friends, um, I, I wish anyone who participates a happy Thanksgiving and, um, and I'm grateful for you all. Um, trying to um, and working to spread more kindness in the world to each other and to um, to the land and to all life. Have a wonderful day and wishing so many blessings to all of you. God bless.